The central hope of the Christian faith is that Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and God will establish a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where he will dwell with his people. That's how the Bible's story ends, and that hope is woven all throughout the scriptures from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end. This morning, the piece of that central hope that we are going to focus on is the resurrection of the dead, specifically the resurrection of believers. Often we have focused on Jesus's death on the cross, but not focused on his resurrection. And we have often focused on Jesus's return without also focusing on what will happen when he returns, specifically that his people will be raised from the dead. In other words, the doctrine of resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of believers, is something that as Christians we uh, often do not focus on as much as we should. But this morning we are going to turn our attention to those central doctrines of the faith. Uh, We will focus uh, on Easter, Lord willing, on the resurrection of Jesus, though we'll touch on it some today. And then uh, this morning, we are going to be focusing our attention on our resurrection, the resurrection of believers at the return of Christ. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in the Bible dealing with the resurrection both of Jesus and of believers. It is a defense as well as an explanation of the doctrine of resurrection. You can see there in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12 that there were some in the church in Corinth who denied the idea of resurrection in general. That it just didn't make sense to them. They didn't believe that there would be a resurrection. And Paul made very clear that if there is no resurrection in general then that meant there would be no resurrection in particular, which would mean that Jesus in particular had not been raised from the dead. And if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then the whole Christian faith falls apart. So Paul gives them witnesses from Scripture uh, about the resurrection. He gives them eyewitness accounts that he points them to, both from the apostles and from other believers who saw Jesus raised from the dead. He shows them logically what the consequences would be if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Our sins would not be forgiven. The apostles would be lying about God because they testified that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Those who have uh, fallen asleep, who've passed away as believers, they would simply have We would have no hope, in other words, beyond the grave if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. But Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Jesus' resurrection has secured our resurrection. So look look with me. I'm going to read the first, I'm going to read verses 20 to 24 of 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we're going to start, where Paul begins to talk about. Uh, the connection between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, and then we'll work through some of the more significant points of the rest of chapter 15, making our way down to the end. So Paul says, beginning in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, "But "...but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. We'll go on to verse 26. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the first thing that Paul says there is that Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are connected his being the first fruits and ours the full harvest. Notice there in verse 20, he says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this is, uh, this is imagery from farming, of course, where when you raise a crop, the first fruits are the, the first part of the harvest, right? And the first part of the harvest gives you an idea of what the full harvest is going to be like. And so Paul says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest, that he was the first one to rise from the dead, but he will by no means be the last because one day the full harvest will be brought in. All who have fallen asleep in Christ will be raised from the dead. Later in verse uh, 23, he says it again. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus first was raised from the dead, then he uh, ascended to God's right hand where he's seated even now. And then at his return, all who are in Christ, all those who belong to Christ will also be raised from the dead. So if you picture the resurrection as sort of a, a huge field of wheat, right? Christ is the first handful of grains of wheat to come from that harvest. And then one day the whole field will be harvested. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us there in those verses. So even in the Old Testament, we were told that a day of resurrection was coming. Daniel spoke of this in Daniel 12. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 26. Jesus pointed the Sadducees all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, where God said he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. All of those things and more in the Old Testament pointed forward to a time of resurrection. And what Paul is saying is, The time of resurrection has dawned, but it started with Jesus. He's the first fruits. And when he comes back, then the full resurrection that Daniel and Isaiah were speaking of will take place. The full harvest will be brought in. In fact, Paul summarizes the whole story of the Bible here in verses 21 and 22 in terms of two men and the realities of death and resurrection. Look at verse 21. He says, As by a man came death, and that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Adam sinned, and his sin brought death into the world. But Jesus came and died and rose, and through his death and resurrection has come resurrection 
for us as well. Verse 22, he says it again, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we're all by nature in Adam. He's our father, our first parent, as it were. We come into the world as people who are in Adam, and from Adam we get sin and death and, and condemnation. Paul uh, spells this out in the second half of Romans chapter 5. Uh, and so that's where we all start. We all start in sin. We all start with death and condemnation and all the rest. But if we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ, if he saves us and makes us his, right, then in Christ we get righteousness, justification, life, all those things Paul says in Romans 5. But specifically he says here, we shall be made alive. Not everybody, right? Not everybody is going to experience resurrection unto life, Paul says. But he says it will be those in Christ, in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, all those who belong to Jesus, all those who trust in Jesus will be made alive. Now, the Bible is clear, and we're not going to go into this this morning, but the Bible is clear that not only Christians, but also unbelievers will be raised from the dead, but their resurrection will be a resurrection to judgment and not to life. You can see this in Daniel 12, verse 2, as well as John 5, I believe it's verse 28 and 29, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. So we're focusing on the resurrection of believers, a resurrection to life. So in Adam, we get death, but in Christ, we get not only life, but resurrection life. So Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. Jesus brought resurrection for all who trust in him and Jesus is the one who will defeat death once and for all. We know he conquered the grave in his own resurrection, but there is coming a day when Jesus will put an end to death for all of us. Look at verses 24 to 26. It says, then comes the end. So once Jesus returns and all those who belong to Christ are raised from the dead, the full harvest comes. Uh, Then he says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, Jesus right now is reigning in heaven at God's right hand. We call that the session of Christ. He ascended to heaven and now he is seated at God's right hand. That's his session where he is reigning as king over all the earth. And in his reign, what he is doing is he is subduing every hostile power and authority and rule in the universe. And the Bible says the last enemy, the last hostile power for him to destroy is death. And he will destroy it when he returns and raises all of his people from the dead, never to die again. This is what Revelation 21 is talking about when, he, when it says in the new creation that there is no more death. Not only no more sorrow, no more tears, but death shall be no more, Revelation 21 says. So note this carefully. Verse 26 says that death is our enemy. Death is not our friend. Death is not a natural part of life, regardless of what 
some may say, death is not part of God's original creation design. Death is a consequence of sin. It is a judgment upon humanity's rebellion. God did not create us to die. That's why death hurts so much. That's why death feels so wrong when we lose somebody that we love. There's something inside of us that says it should not be this way. And that's because this is not the way that God designed it. Death is our enemy. Even though Paul can say to die is gain because then I get to depart and be with Christ, as we saw last week, that does not mean that death is a good thing. Death is our enemy enemy, but Christ has conquered it and will banish it. It is the last enemy to be destroyed, but it will be destroyed. There is coming a day when death will be no more. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That though we have sinned, that though we uh, have um, experienced spiritual death and will experience physical death, that God sent His Son Jesus into the world, the perfect God-man. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He bore our sin on the cross. He experienced the suffering and judgment and condemnation that our sins deserved in our place. And he experienced that so fully and so totally, so perfectly satisfied the righteous judgment of God that he was vindicated, raised from the dead, Never to die again. Death could not hold him, the Bible says. And he did all of that on our behalf to secure not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also our fellowship with God as we're put in right relationship with him through Christ and our eternal resurrected bodily life in the presence of God. So that's the good, and that's offered to everybody who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Everyone who belongs to Christ receives all of those things and more. That is the gospel. Now, that is not a promise merely for the future, that there's coming a day when we will be raised from the dead. It is a promise that affects the way we live right now, or at least it should. If we believe that one day we will be raised from the dead, to dwell with Jesus in the presence of our Father, if we believe that, that ought to give us a certain level of courage and confidence and willingness to sacrifice and serve and give of ourselves because we know that this life is not all that there is. Notice in verse 19 that Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus was not raised from the dead and we won't be raised from the dead, then if we are still living a faithful Christian life, but we are wrong about the resurrection, people ought to feel sorry for us. People ought to pity us. Why? Because... What's implied there is we are living in a way that only makes sense if there is a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, why would you give of your money and give of your time and give of your resources to spread the gospel and serve other Christians and care for your neighbors? And and why would you uh, take certain 
risks and why would you make certain sacrifices? Why would you live this way? Why would you go to church? Why would you spend your Sunday morning watching a sermon at home? Why would you do these things if there's no resurrection, if there's no life after this? If this is all there is, why would you do that? You would be wasting your life, Paul is saying. But you're not wasting your life because Christ was raised from the dead and all those in Christ will be raised from the dead. And so that makes sense of why we live the way that we do. Notice what Paul says later in uh, verse 30. He says, and part of the question here is, if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection... Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, why do you think I'm doing what I'm doing? Why do you think that I am willing to expose myself to so much danger as I travel from place to place? Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was beaten. Paul was thrown in jail. Paul was stoned and left for dead. Paul was run out of town. All because he was telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that he died on the cross, and that he rose again, and that people who trust in him can be forgiven, made right with God, and have the promise of eternal life, resurrected life with God. He was suffering for that. He was exposing himself to danger. He was taking risks. He was saying, in a sense, I die every day. My life is a series of deaths. As I suffer and pour myself out so that others would hear the gospel of Christ. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, if there's no life after this, why in the world am I doing that? If there's no resurrection, he says, here's what we ought to do. We ought to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's a lot of people's philosophy of life. This is all, this life is all there is. You only get one shot, you only get one life, and so you might as well enjoy it, have as much fun as you can, uh, you know, get the most out of it, and when it's over, it's over. That's not how Christians should think about our life, because we know this life is not all there is. We know that there is coming a day of reckoning that Jesus is going to return, that all who belong to him are going to be raised to dwell in his presence forever, and every single sacrifice that we have made in this life will be more than compensated for, more than rewarded by all the goodness and joy and delight that God will give us in his presence forever. So there are certain godly risks Uh, certain Christ-like sacrifices that believing in the resurrection of the dead ought to make us willing and able to take. I'm not talking about reckless risk. I'm not talking about sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. I'm talking about people like missionaries, as one example, who will go into a climate that they know might kill them, serve among people who they know might hate them and even seek to put them to death or at least to put them in jail 
so that they can tell others about Jesus. And they take those risks and they make those sacrifices because they are not clinging to their life here and now in this world because they know a better world is coming. They know a new creation is going to dawn one day and that they will be raised to live with Christ in that new creation. And every sacrifice that they have made here will have been worth it. In some way, now that's, the, that's one of the extreme examples, but in some way, all of us ought to be, li- be living in a way that only makes sense if we believe that a resurrection day is coming, if we believe that Jesus will return. Right, that means giving sacrificially for the cause of the gospel. Right? That means uh, loving our neighbors in a way that's sacrificial. That means loving our families in a way that's sacrificial. That means giving of our lives for others rather than seeking just what we can get for ourselves, trying to get the most out of this life while we still have it. Instead, giving of ourselves in this life while we have the opportunity, knowing that one day we will experience an even fuller life in the presence of God when Jesus returns. Now, when we talk about our resurrection and the fact that our a day of resurrection is coming for us, one of the natural questions that pops up is, well, what will our resurrection bodies be like? Will they be like these bodies? Will they be different? Well, Paul answers that question <clears throat> uh, beginning in verse 35. Now, the question, when the question is raised in verse 35, uh, somebody He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And his response in verse 36 is, you foolish person. Now, when we read that, we might think, well, that sounds like a legitimate question to me, that we would want to know what kind of body we would have. But as one commentator said that I was looking at this week, uh, the question Paul is anticipating here is not an honest question. We can tell by the way he responds. But it's a question sort of like the Sadducees asked to Jesus. The woman, This woman had uh, seven husbands and none of them had children, but she was married to all of them and they all died and then she died. So whose, whose husband will she be in the resurrection? Well, the point of that question was not to get an answer from Jesus, but was to make the idea of resurrection look ridiculous. Well, look, you know, if we have resurrection, how are all these marriages going to work? And Jesus brushed the question aside and said, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't understand the power of God. You don't believe the scriptures. In the same way, this question seems to be a dishonest one, one that's meant to make the idea of resurrection seem ridiculous. Well, what kind of body are we going to have? I mean, are, you know, you're going to put your body in the ground and it's going to turn to dust. How is the resurrection even going to work? And so Paul says, that's a foolish question. Right? And then Here's what he says about how the, res- how the resurrection will work in verse 36. He says, what you sow, he goes back to this uh, farming analogy, agricultural analogy. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, when you put an acorn in the ground, What's going to grow up from that acorn is not going to look like an acorn, right? It's going to be an oak tree. And so we should expect that uh, when our body goes into the ground like a seed and dies, 
that what rises up, the life that God brings out of that, uh, may be a little bit different than what was sown. In what way is it going to be different? I don't. Paul's not saying that your resurrection body is going to be diff- as different um, from your current body as an oak tree is from an acorn, but he is saying it is going to be a little bit different, and he tells us some of how it's going to be different, beginning in verse 42. So skip down there, and here's what he says. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. In other words, the bodies that we have right now are perishable. They get old. They get sick. They wear out. They break. They die. But our resurrection bodies will be imperishable. No more sickness. No more weakness. No more death. They won't break. They won't wear out. They'll be imperishable bodies. They are sown in dishonor. And our bodies uh, don't get better as we get older. Right? Our bodies wear out. Um, our bodies, um, when we die that's that's never the way we would choose for somebody to see us the way our bodies look at the end they are sown he says in dishonor but they'll be raised in glory when you are raised from the dead you will bear the image of christ you will be as perfectly like him as it is possible for a human being to be the bible says in first john 3 that uh, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is so our bodies will be raised imperishable they'll be raised in glory and he says they're sown in weakness but they'll be raised in power our bodies right now can't always do the things that we want them to do, especially, again, as we get older. There are fewer and fewer things that we're able to do that we used to be able to do when we were younger, but our bodies grow increasingly weaker over time, but our resurrection bodies will be characterized by power, by strength. So they will be glorious bodies, good bodies. If there was no resurrection, all we could expect after a certain point in our life is a steady decline in the strength and appearance and health of our bodies. But the resurrection gives us hope for something better. Strong, glorious, imperishable, immortal bodies. We can't look at this chapter and talk about the resurrection of the dead without going to the very end, verses 50 to 58, and this great celebration of the resurrection and the defeat of death that's going to happen when Christ returns. Paul unfolds for us some of the mysteries, some of what was hidden in the past but has now been revealed about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and the dead are raised. Look at verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we will not all die before Jesus comes back. Some will still be alive at his return. But we shall all be changed. Whether you're dead or alive at the return of Christ, your body will be transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. So, 
our bodies at Christ's return, whether we are dead or alive, our bodies are going to be changed. They're going to be transformed. What once was perishable is now going to be imperishable. He says our bodies that are mortal, that are subject to death now, will put on immortality. We will no longer die, no longer be subject to death. And then he says, verse 54, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus comes back and the dead are raised and our bodies are made immortal, that is when death will be fully and finally and forever defeated. And this saying will come to pass where death is taunted. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You were dominant for so long, but now you have been Defeated, And how is death defeated? God gives us victory over death through Jesus who paid for our sin so that we would no longer be under the curse and condemnation of the law. He rose from the dead victorious over the grave so that we might also one day be raised and live with him forever. Now let me leave you with verse 58. What does all this mean for right now? Besides the hope that it gives us for the future, besides what it gives us to look forward to at the return of Christ, how does believing that one day you will be immortal, raised from the dead to live in the presence of God forever, how does that change or shape the way that you live right now? That's what verse 58 is for. Therefore, because of all this, because of Jesus' resurrection and your resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, he says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, because Jesus is coming back, because He's alive, and because at His return, you and I who belong to Christ will be raised from the dead, here's what Paul says we should do. Keep up the good work. Be steadfast. Don't quit serving the Lord. Don't quit loving God. Don't quit loving and serving your neighbor. Don't quit loving and caring for your family. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Give yourself to the things that you know are pleasing to God, that God has called you to do, that God has given you to do. However significant or insignificant they may feel on any particular day, Give yourself to those labors, because here's what Paul says, In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. All of it matters. All of it matters. All that you do now, in the name of Christ, matters now and forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and faithfulness to us. We pray for your mercy and help in this challenging season. We pray for a Christ-like courage and confidence um, as we care for one another and serve for one another. We pray for wisdom and um, humility as we recognize that so many things are outside of our control and there are so many things we don't know or understand. We pray, God, that you would give us peace 
Help us rest and trust in you, knowing that you are in control and that you are working for our good and that we can trust you even when things seem out of control because you, God, are in control. We ask for your grace and help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.